Recovery Elevator, episode 455. The one thing I've learned about myself along the way is that uh, the only limitations in this world that I have are the ones that I put on myself. I often forget that sobriety is freedom. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Chris. He's 40 years old from Austin, Texas, and took his last drink on February 16th, 2007. Wow, great job, Chris. Listeners, I've been trying to get Chris on the show for a long time. We finally got it scheduled, and you guys are going to love the interview. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do such an incredible job. Listeners, today is going to be a good day. In fact, it has already been a good day. Check out our events page on the Recovery Elevator website for our lineup of upcoming retreats and courses. On January 1st, we've got Restore. This is our dry January intensive course. Then in early February, What's Up Alcohol-Free Ukulele Lessons for five weeks. Then in March, we have two events in Costa Rica, and then we'll see you in Bozeman, Montana for our sixth annual retreat in Big Sky Country, August 14th to the 18th. There's a link in the show notes for more information. Thank you, Robin. Hey, before we get any further, let's hear from a fantastic sponsor, Exact Nature. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery. Recently, I've been taking Exact Nature's Z's pills and sleeping so well. These products are 100% THC free and they can be a great tool for your recovery. Learn more at exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, listeners, let's get started. This is episode nine out of 10, where we answer questions from listeners. And today's question comes from Krista B in one of our Cafe RE groups. She says, how is Paul feeling about ayahuasca and other plant medicines? Are you still as passionate about its benefits today as a few years ago? Has the treatment worked in a sustained way in your opinion? Thanks for listening, Krista B and great question. I've wanted to do a follow-up with ayahuasca for a long time, and I'm glad this question prompted it. So let's do it. Now, I talk about my initial experience with ayahuasca in episode 170, that's 170 if you wanna go back and listen. Okay, so my plan in 2018 was to fly to Costa Rica, drink ayahuasca, and not say anything about it. (laughs) However, on the plane ride home, I knew I had to because when I set out to do the Recovery Elevator podcast, my mission was simple. Number one, create accountability for myself and help others. So with that, if I came across a beneficial resource and didn't share it with the audience because of fear of how people would respond, well, that would not be a podcast that I personally would want to listen to. So I waited six weeks after drinking ayahuasca and then shared about my experience with the Recovery Elevator audience. Overall, it was very well received. I think my delivery was part of the pushback, but you live and you learn. Overall, and this includes people in AA, people in recovery are very receptive to the idea of plant medicine because let's face it, success rates are bleak in this space and the pain points are quite intense. 
In addition, I have met many who have seen their sobriety bolstered with the use of these medicines, as did Bill W. First off, for listeners who don't know what ayahuasca is, it's a brew consisting of two ingredients, both of which are found in the Amazon. Once the Banisteriopsis capivine and the plant Secotria viridis are combined, you now have a brew which contains the spirit molecule DMT. And with this special concoction, the DMT can now pass through the intestinal wall and into the bloodstream. Now, ayahuasca is not new. The Colombians kept it alive in the Amazon for over 10,000 years, but only recently, in the last 50 to 60 years, has it come from the dense rainforests of Colombia, Brazil, and Peru to America and other parts of the Western world. Apparently, there's a prophecy in the shamanic space that says once humanity is out of balance, the medicines will emerge. Interesting. Now, a couple years ago, I came across a meme about what ayahuasca does, and I think it describes it perfectly. Here we go. It says, in the West, we prescribe medications. Medications suppress symptoms, and they make people feel better, and sometimes this is appropriate. Ayahuasca is a medicine. It doesn't suppress anything. It brings everything to the surface. So instead of running away, you actually have to face yourself. You have to face your difficult emotions. You have to face your physical pain in the ceremonial space. And by facing it, and by sitting with it, and by breathing through it, you can move through it. And this is what healing is. This is from Tanya Mate. Now, I 100% believe that plant medicines, ayahuasca being one of many, do have a place in the world of addiction and mental health. I've heard too many firsthand accounts from people never touching their drug of choice after working with plant medicine. In fact, there is a plant medicine called Ibogaine that is quite effective in helping people kick heroin. Now, huge asterisks here. Set and setting is everything. Do not buy ayahuasca on the internet and go for it solo. There is so much preparation that goes into an ayahuasca ceremony, much of it starting months in advance. Now, is ayahuasca addictive? My last ayahuasca ceremony was over two years ago, and I currently have no plans to drink it again in the near future. I do not think ayahuasca is addictive, nor do I feel it has much potential for abuse. Here's a typical ayahuasca experience. You drink a horrible tasting sludge, then there's a high chance that you will barf your brains out with an 18% chance you'll also shit your pants. Then you'll be forced to face the deepest and darkest recesses of the subconscious. You'll sit front and center with your fears with a good chance of an ego death taking place. Side note, with an ego death, you don't know it's fake. You 100% think you're dying. In Quechua, ayahuasca means rope of death, meaning it's the closest you can come to dying without dying. Yikes. Now I don't want to turn you off. This is a beautiful medicine, and under the right circumstances, it will answer many big questions in your life, why you drink being one of them. I will say that it still has an impact on my everyday life. How? mostly in terms of connection. You've probably heard a quantum physicist, a philosopher, or even Chief Seattle say that we are all connected. Ayahuasca helped me take this from a cerebral understanding to a full body understanding at the cellular level. Another lasting impact is the colors in nature are still more vibrant than ever. It's like I see a sunset or sunrise for the very first time. Another change I've noticed is my body seems to intuitively know where the moon is at all times, and both my hearing and vision have improved since drinking the medicine. Now, in terms of researching and studying these medicines, well, it used to be illegal, even cannabis, but things are changing. 
Now the FDA is doing official studies on psilocybin. In fact, it's in the fast track with the FDA program and other researched institutes, the John Hopkins Medical School comes to mind, are also studying these plant medicines that pharmaceutical companies cannot patent. That's a biggie. The Achilles heel of the NFL or National Football League is concussions. These would be traumatic brain injuries. The NFL is sending players to ayahuasca retreats and they are seeing brains rewire after just a couple ceremonies. Under brain scans, the brain lights up like a fireworks show on ayahuasca and where parts of the brain that had been dead before or dormant begin to fire again. ESPN has done some awesome articles on this. Another way to say this is that people with traumatic brain injuries are healing using ayahuasca. Recent NFL Player of the Year Aaron Rodgers cited ayahuasca as a reason for how he won the award. Author and the star of Netflix's recent show Ancient Apocalypse, Graham Hancock, says that all politicians should drink ayahuasca before coming into office. Huh, that's kind of funny. He also thinks these medicines perhaps played a role in how the pyramids were built which we still have no idea how indigenous cultures moved 90-ton blocks up the side of a huge mountain. Think Machu Picchu. Again, I do think these medicines have a place in the recovery and sobriety space, but please do your own research. Now, I have met many who are rocking sobriety and they have never touched ayahuasca, mushrooms, San Pedro, etc. I personally found it helpful on my journey, but I recognize this is not for everyone, nor do I think everyone should drink plant medicine. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this intro. I want to thank Krista B. for the question. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Chris. Is it me, or does the end of the year season seem extra overwhelming? Yes, it's supposed to be joyous and full of togetherness, but if I'm being honest, I've noticed that a lot of what is happening during this time of the year only adds stress and tension to my life. I'm a working mom who likes prioritizing recovery, and these months make me feel a bit too stretched. I also love routine, and not having a lot of it during the holidays destabilizes me a bit. Having weekly therapy grounds me and allows me to actually focus on the good that is happening around me versus spiral down the stress. Having extra reassurance, validation, and tools in my recovery kit is just what I need as the end of the year approaches. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator. Chris, how are you? Hey, Paul. Thanks. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Chris. Great to see you. Great to have you on the Recovery Elevator podcast. Listeners, this one has been a long time in the making. We've gone back and forth scheduling. We have run into each other, a friend of a friend. There has been one degree of separation between me and Chris for a long time now. I've been hearing his name in the sobriety world for for several, several years. In fact, right after I started RE. Yeah, it's like, oh, this guy, Chris, he's doing this. I will let him share what he's covering. But before we get all of that stuff, Chris, let's get right into this. When was your last drink? My last drink was February 16th, 2007. 2007. So. Listeners, it is possible. You can do it. Uh, great job, Chris. How does how does that feel? You're coming up on 17 years, if I if I'm correct. There, 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really weird. I've really been leaning into the 16 and a half for some reason this year. Like it's having 17 years feels very, very odd to think about. I, you know, when I hit the the 10 year mark, it, I felt like I reached a mountaintop and then I just keep climbing. And it's, it is every single year. It just blows my mind that I'm even here. It, it, it for me, it, it got stale around year nine or 10. And then after year 10, it's blown my mind. Like this is all bonus. This is all like, I cannot believe that at 40 years old, I am sitting here thinking about having almost 17 years of sobriety. That's just, that's just wild. It's wild. Yeah. That's incredible, Chris. I'm excited to hear about your story personally, and also to share it with the recovery elevator audience. But before we get into your story, Let's get a little background about yourself. You just said your age, you're 40, but maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. Do you have a family? Do you have any kiddos? And most importantly, Chris, what do you like to do for fun? Ah, well, that's easy. So my name is Chris Marshall. Uh, I'm a person in long-term recovery, 40 years old, got sober when I was 23 years old. And I live here in Austin, Texas. I'm, I pretty much lived in Texas my whole life. Grew up in in the Houston area, went to college in San Antonio, have lived in Austin about 16 years. So I got a wife and uh, two kids and um, kids are great. They're eight and nine. And yeah, it's it's like pretty I, I, on on the, the surface of things. Uh, if you look at if you looked at just peeked in my, my house, you'd say like, oh, it's just a pretty, pretty, pretty normal house. You know, got got a dad and kids and wife and. But I think our life is pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, I think being an entrepreneur is a pretty ex- extraordinary experience. And uh, I'm just super proud of my wife and, and my kids. They're they're really they're really something special. Yeah, Chris. And, and what do you like to do for fun? Oh yeah, and the fun piece. I like to create for fun, um, and that that's taken many different forms over the years. Um, I had like an art phase. Now I'm into like music phase. So like I. And it's, it's nothing. I'm not like a you know famous composer or anything. I'm literally just like on my Garage Band on my app on my phone, and I'm just like making like weird little music. Um, no one will ever hear it, but I love to create. I think that's that's part of what keeps me going in sobriety is creating new things and creating new connections, creating new ideas and concepts, but also just creating like weird funky music. And you know, I the art that I was doing when I was 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 painting wasn't great, but it was something that felt like a whole lot of fun. So that that's would be my answer. Chris, I love that answer. You're episode 455 and I've asked that question to 455 people. Well, not, you know, Chris and Odette have also asked those people, but I don't think I've heard that answer just create. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that before we get into your story, because a lot of people when they quit drinking, the creativity muscle, it, it, it's it's pretty flat. It's pretty weak right now. Like what does the creative process look like for you? Did it come back on day one of sobriety? Do you create in your mind? Do you first create with pen and paper? What does that look like for you? It's a great question. Uh, I've never really been asked about creativity. So this is great. Um, for me, it's it's something I've always done. I think as a kid, before long before I found alcohol, creativity was something that I just loved. I enjoyed just thinking. I enjoyed just um, in my mind's eye creating a story. Uh, I, I wrote a lot as a kid, did a lot of writing, wrote a lot of poetry, uh, wrote a lot of short stories. And it wasn't for the, the the viewing or enjoyment of anyone else. It was for for me. 
And that's one thing I've always loved about creativity, that it's so personal. It's it's something that I personally enjoy. I, I make things that it's if people see it great, but it's for me. I I enjoy it. Um, and so when I think about creativity, the first thing I think about is freedom and the the uh, the, the permission to do anything I want. So again, going back to like the art thing, I bought a whole bunch of acrylics at the store. I bought a whole bunch of cheap canvases and paintbrushes. I even know what paintbrushes to buy, but I just like, I'm just going to start painting. And I would just kind of think, okay, landscapes, that sounds cool. I just would do these landscapes. And over time, uh, I let myself get more creative about what kind of paint I was using or what kind of or the, the, the amount of paint I was using so I could create textures within the paint itself. And like, it was, there was no rules. I, I don't know anything about painting. I don't know anything about the mediums that I should be using oil or acrylics. I don't know any of that. And I don't need to learn it. Creativity gives me a space where I can just not have rules. I can be free. And that inner critic part of me just can't, it's not, it's there, but it's hard to criticize something that you're not, that's not your craft. So when I make music or if I make art, uh, if I, even if I write to, to a degree there, you know, the inner critic can't play in that space because there's nothing to criticize. I'm trying something new. I'm doing something new. It feels like something new. And I think that that's very important for someone who drank as a means to control the world around him and drank to create um, these connections that I, that I craved so much. So much of my alcohol use was about the, the managing my world, managing my emotions, managing my anxiety. And creativity is the opposite of that. I know that we say connections to the opposite of addiction, but to me, creativity is the opposite of addiction, creativity and play. Chris, I, I, I love that. In fact, the, the creative process is a way to almost silence the inner critic because it's not your art. It's flowing through you. I've never thought of it like that. That's solid gold for me. I've always been creative and I quit drinking. I took that creativity into entrepreneurship, developed a sports business, an arcade, a DJ business, and even RE. But it wasn't until, and this is more for listeners right now, it wasn't until like year three, four, five, even especially six, seven, eight. Year seven or year eight, I built a, a model train set that went through my walls, like into my crawl space, into my basement, music, all this stuff. So be patient, listeners, with the creativity part. It is it is waiting to bloom. It's coming. And Chris, I loved how you said with alcohol, is f- ditching the booze gives you freedom. And then you can create to express. I uh, love it. Let's do what we came here to do, Chris. Let's talk about your journey into alcohol addiction and your journey away from alcohol addiction. I think you said you got sober at 23. Um, take it from wherever you want to start, buddy. Yes. I mean, I think I won't go go too far back, but I do think what's important to know about me is that very early on in my life, I always felt like I was the outsider. I always felt like I was different from everyone else. If you know, if I was in a room full of uh, five-year-olds, for some reason, I, I didn't feel like I belonged in a room of five-year-olds. You know, like, I was like, I like all these other kindergartners are, we're all the same age. We live in the same city. We, we, you know, we, we have all these things in common, but I would always feel different. I always felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I was on the, the wrong planet or something. Um, that was always how I felt. And so this, you know, going to middle school, same thing. I, I had a lot of behavior problems. My parents divorced. 
my my dad had mental illness, and you know I, I blamed myself a lot for for my dad's uh, mental illness and for my parents' divorce, and which was totally unjustified. But I internalized that, right? So the more I blamed myself for the way that things were at home, the more I felt the need to distance myself from the rest of society. And so by the time I get into middle school, uh, I, I just have no friends. And I'm a completely, I I think a completely unlikable person too, because I was just so guarded. I was so like, don't get touched, don't get near me. Don't touch me. I'm radioactive. I hurt people. I make people sick. I, I, I divorce, you know, is, is what is what I'm what I do. I everything I touch dies. And that's how I moved through middle school. And then I got to high school and I craved connection. I craved belonging. I saw people starting to fracture off into their little friend groups. You know, they sit at the table and they'd all be kind of there. I wanted that so much. Um, and so the first time I had alcohol, I was 16 years old. And it was with this group of friends who kind of kind of just taken me in. Uh, they're, they're all, you know, 16 year old boys. And so we're, you know, we're hanging out and they're, they have this this cooler of beer that's been sitting out in the sun all day, in the Texas sun all day. So it's it's hot. And I remember the first time, I remember the sound of that beer opening. I remember the the first taste of that beer. Uh, two things happened almost simul- like almost simultaneously, two, two reactions. First is this is disgusting. The second was this is awesome. This connection, this bonding thing that I'm doing with with these men, like this, this is this is it. This is. This is the thing that I've wanted my whole life. Chris, that's a common response on this podcast. I had the same reaction. Fireworks going off. This is it. I imagine you said, me and you, alcohol, we're going to be bros for a long time to come. Immediately. Oh, immediately. It was like, this is this is, this is is the ticket. This is the vehicle to which I can find that connection I've created my whole life. So it kind of rinse and repeat you know, throughout college. And I found myself by the time I was 23 years old in a place where I had lost all those connections. I I drank to to find right. I was sitting in in a room full of people at a bar and be you know I'd feel absolutely alone. That was what my relationship with alcohol was at the end. Went to treatment, and the beautiful thing about that treatment experience was that they really emphasized the idea that I could have some mental health problems, and one of those being social anxiety. And I was like, oh, I'm socially anxious. Is is that is that that's the problem? It's it's not I'm a bad person or I've I you know split up my family or I've made my dad mentally ill. Um, you mean that I'm I'm just someone who's got something that can be fixed. That changed everything for me. I think if I'd been told uh, it was some kind of like, you know, I was some kind of like bad person or you know, or anything like that, I think I wouldn't have wouldn't have done as well. That was that was huge. So so I got some kind of help for the mental health piece of it. Had a little bit of depression, a lot of social anxiety, uh, and and the more I thought about it, the more that what they were explaining to me sounded a lot like social anxiety. It was. I was I was you know wasn't sure of myself in these situations, and alcohol really helped me to to turn down the anxiety. Except yeah. when I stopped drinking, it would turn up. Chris, I got a question. Before you went to treatment. All right, your first drink, middle school, this is it. We're connecting. And then you said at 23, you found yourself in the bar drinking, but you felt alone. Was there a moment before that, before you went to treatment, when you're like, God darn it, <laughs> like this sucks, like th- this backfired, like what happened to alcohol? Like, I mean, it, it, it had you, it, what, what went up, what went down? Was it pretty close or like did it lead up there in the 20s for a bit? I mean, it, it was at the very end of my drinking. 
what made me stop was the fact that I saw all my friends doing the kinds of connecting that I always wanted to do. I saw them going on hunting trips, right? I saw them going down to Mexico and partying for a few days and they were living this life and they weren't inviting me. I wasn't invited because I was such a mess. I was being excluded from the very connection that I thought alcohol was going to give me, right? I thought I thought alcohol was a key that was going to open up this door to this deep, meaningful connection. And what it did was it was, instead of being a key, it was a bar that locked me out of connection. So that was really the the reason I went to treatment and the reason I stayed in treatment was I saw that I was alone in a way that I didn't want to be. That was my rock bottom. I didn't, I mean, I was 23 years old. (laughs) I didn't have a house to lose. I didn't have a marriage to lose. I didn't have all these finances that I blew through. Nah, I I failed out of college, but most importantly, I was alone. And that to me was, was its own kind of hell. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So social anxiety, you're like, wow, this can be fixed. How did you address that without the alcohol? Yeah. Well, I did have a great therapy team that worked with me uh, in in the therapeutic way. But I I wanted, as you said, that I immediately thought about what it really was. And what really transpired was there was a group of people uh, that were alumni. And they just took me in and said, you're one of us now. Sorry, you can't get rid of us. And on Friday nights, I would go out with them. I mean, I'm, I'm shaking. I'm, 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 I'm throwing up in the bathroom because I'm so nervous about hanging out with people and making eye contact without alcohol. Um, I'm really just, just kind of skittish, almost. You know, yeah. I think that's that. That's that's. I don't think I've ever called myself skittish before, but that's that's what it was. I was a skittish, demure person who, sh- who made myself small, made my body small. Uh, didn't want to look at anyone. Um, and what the, that group of people did. They just took me to meetings. And then after the meetings on Friday nights, we go to the alumni meetings. Then after the alumni meetings, we all go out to eat at this Mexican restaurant. The food was awful. It was bad. But we would just go and then we would hang out till 2 a.m. drinking coffee. And that's how I spent the first year of my sobriety was every Friday night. And and those Friday nights meant more to me than anything. I, I just remember if I can just make it to Friday, you know, go to meetings, meetings, meetings. But if I can just make it to Friday. I could see my friends and these friends were way older than me. (laughs) These friends were married. Uh, These friends had kids. They had real jobs and they just, they just took me along, you know, and, and, and over queso and coffee, we were making these connections that I, that I wanted my whole life. Yeah. Chris, I want to back it up one more time because I know listeners are curious before going to treatment. Did you try to moderate? Did you try to quit on your own? Were there rules into place? No, I, I, I did. I couldn't. Um, I'm just fortunately uh, or unfortunately, I'm just one of those people that just never tried to stop. I, I knew I had a problem. I knew that I was alone in the way that I never wanted to be, but I never attempted to stop on my own. I, I knew that I couldn't stop drinking without having some very adverse consequences. And that's, that's the other thing that's part of my story too, that I don't really talk, talk a lot about, which is I was physically addicted to alcohol. And so I needed a safe medical detox. And I think a lot of people do. And for me, I I would get physically sick if I did not consume alcohol. So for me, the idea of not drinking or moderating, tapering down was never, it was never a a question because I knew that I needed alcohol to to not have another seizure. And I started having seizures when I would 
not have alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So your first year, I love how you said it with you bonding over queso and coffee, hanging out with guys that are older than you. Um, that alumni just scooped you right up. That's incredible. That's, I love hearing that, you know, what was it like year two, year three and beyond? Yeah. So I immediately realized that this life was possible and seeing people who were, were staying sober was the biggest boost for my confidence. I believe that I believe that they believed that that I would stay sober. I didn't believe it for myself. I was like, and then I just, I saw people that were in my, my little litter mate in rehab, right? No one was staying sober. Everyone was going back out. People lost their lives, right? Like I, I did not think that this was possible for me. And I loved how those folks just were consistent in my life and kept showing up and showing me that it was possible. And because they believed in me, I started to believe in myself. Uh, year two, three, I moved to, moved to Austin. Just, I didn't know what else to do. I had not planned on living this long. <laughs> like, like I, I knew that I was going to be dead by 24. So now that I'm alive and I had this life ahead of me, I didn't know what to do. Oh, I, I literally had no idea what to do. And I think that that's true for a lot of people that when we get sober, it's like, now what? Now, now what do you do? You know, you know now you're going to live. Yeah. Okay. Chris, in those first couple of years, you're like, I'm only going to live till 24. I think you said that, you know, was there a moment if there's like intense craving or, you know what, I'm going to go hang with the buddies who are drinking. I'm, I'm in my twenties. Right. And everybody's drinking. Was there a time that you wanted to go back to that old way of life? Um, honestly, no, because I had a sufficient substitute in this group of people. Like they, I, I don't know if I can even understand uh, if I'm really uh, explaining just how, much my life became this alumni group and this group of I mean, it really just is a group of people they would pick me up on friday to, to go to the driving range and hit golf balls they they would uh you know run me groceries if i got sick one of the ladies was you know became like a second mom to me right like it it was this community that was intensely caring that showed me what it was like to to do things that i just did not know how to do i did not know how to pay my own bills and my mom is fantastic, fantastic mom. She's been just a great mom my entire life. And especially when I was in my cups, she did the best that she could. And I remember one of those, uh, one, one of the, his name was Chris. His name's Chris too. Talked to my mom and just said like, you need to let him, you need to let him go. You need to let him have his own experience. You, you're going to love your son to death, man. I remember Chris saying that. And my mom was like, okay, I'm going to back off. I'm going to let my son become this person in recovery that he needs to be and that that autonomy was so huge so were there moments where i i i had that thought of a drink sure um i had my first big breakup at about 18 months sobriety i i went to the gas station i was like okay i'm just gonna do it right i did have those moments but it was it ever like i want to i want to trade in the life that i've created in sobriety for the life that i had that never happened because my life in sobriety was just filled with all of these quirky, weird people who were uh, who we had nothing in common with, except they cared a lot about me. And I didn't never understand why they cared so much about me, but it made me love them back and it made me want to keep going. Yeah, Chris, you dropped a major value bomb right there. Now, listeners, this was the question was, did you ever want to go back with cravings? You said no, because I had a sufficient substitute being the community. 
I've done chats on filling the void, right? Just not not drinking is not an activity. Like, hey, Tom, what are you doing Friday night? Yeah, just gonna hang out home, not drink. Like that that's a start, but you have to fill the void. You have to create the life where alcohol is no longer needed. I I, I love that. And, and you started to say that life is possible in, in your 20s. And there's a beautiful overlap here where your life goes and enters the sobriety world. I don't know if you want to go there yet, but uh, keep going. Yeah. So I say, what now? I literally go to the local community college uh, and take an aptitude test. They say you can be uh, a, a, like a religious leader, a firefighter, or uh, a counselor. And I was like, uh, counselor sounds good. <laughs> counselor sounds good. That's I don't know about enough. <laughs> I don't know about the other two, but respect to those professions. But counselor just resonated, and it, it did immediately. The second the second I saw that as an option for me, my entire life was just like this is the next step, Chris. And uh, went back to school, became a counselor, and uh, that's where everything changed for me. Becomes because I became a clinician. Gotcha. Did you go back to work in in the treatment field? What did it look like? Yeah. So uh, immediately did an internship, you know, and, and I think that a lot of people that were in my that in my cohort uh, were, were doing the same thing I was doing, right? Like you're in recovery and you're looking for a way to sustain your recovery through like making it your profession. And one thing that a couple of my professors were really adept at was, was telling me like, hey, by the way, when you're working in recovery and working in the treatment industry, your recovery has to be twice as strong. And that's something I took on immediately. So I immediately started going to therapy and I doubled up the amount of meetings that I was going to. Yeah, at what age do you have right now? So we're, we're about 25. Okay, 25. Yeah. gotcha. Cool, about, cool. about 25, about two two years sobriety, uh, did school, got out of school, and now I'm, now I'm working in treatment centers. And it was so important for me to maintain my own recovery journey. I couldn't go to a meeting, you know, drive, drive, clients from the treatment center to a meeting and count that as my meeting. No, that's work. I'm doing work. I'm at work, drive those, those clients back to the treatment center. And then I need to go to a meeting for myself. I need to take care of my own recovery. That's not, that's not, there's a difference. And so that was really helpful. And then going to therapy was really important because I had never really worked on some of those issues. Again, like I said, the, the the childhood stuff, the feeling like I made my dad mentally ill, the fact that I thought my parents divorced because of me, um, that guilt and shame was something that, yes, I was working a program of recovery, but I felt like I really needed help with that other stuff. And it was really good. So a lot of trauma stuff, right? Therapy was really helpful. So I was doing therapy, doing my own stuff, doing work, working as a counselor, and I'm getting really good at working as a counselor, working at an in, in, inpatient uh, aftercare, residential, PHP. I was doing, doing the whole levels of care. Uh, detox, which was my favorite. And while I was working with folks, I had a client uh, who was in aftercare and said, hey, Chris, I'm just finding it a real hard, I'm having a really hard time staying sober. This is this is a bigger struggle than I ever realized. And I don't know if I'm willing to sacrifice my life, my social life for sobriety. Uh, because when I'm sober, I'm missing out on all those important professional calls. I'm missing out on on the on the after after work drinks conversation that transpires. I'm missing out on the things that make uh, me and my profession move forward. I'm missing out on all those things. And that was a Friday night, no Friday afternoon. She was my like my last client on a Friday. Uh, I come back Monday and found that she was killed in a drunk driving accident. 
Yikes. Was she driving drunk? Yeah. Okay. Wow. And look, this, this podcast is real. This can happen at any moment in any time, anybody's story. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Chris, for sharing. Yeah. Um, And and again, this is weird to say, but when I was working in the treatment industry, a lot of us learned to kind of numb ourselves to the idea that people died, Um, especially when I was working in detox people. Oh, you know, I just died overdose, you know? Oh, like I never want, want to be uh, desensitized to someone's death. And I was being kind of told like, you know what, it, that could have happened at any time, at any moment, it could have, but it really stuck with me. I mean, I've had, you know, clients who have, you know, ended their own lives too. And like that, that is a different kind of guilt. But this one was like, it wasn't that I felt personally responsible for for her losing her life. I felt like we failed her as a society, that if she would have had something else to turn to, she would have survived. And that's not, of course, we can't know that, but it just it just would not leave me alone. This idea that the, the that society failed her was something that kept just ringing in my head over and over. I go to, you know, to do my uh, psychoeducational courses in, in treatment and we're talking about triggers and I'm just handing out this paper and telling people to administer triggers, identify your triggers and the best of luck to you. And it was just like, I'm getting real tired, getting real tired of giving people things that aren't real. There's not, there's no substance behind saying, what are your triggers? Good luck and live your life and, and avoid those triggers. You're going to avoid all of life. And so I guess it was a confluence of, of all these different things. I'm burnt out of the, the profession. Um, you know, I'm seeing, you know, people die and I'm seeing that this idea of triggers isn't working. And so that's when the idea of Sandspar came. And I wanted to create a space where people could learn to manage and move, move through and heal from their triggers. Gotcha. And and sans bar, and we, we spoke earlier, sans is a French word. It means without. We, uh, and in, in Texas, they say sans. Uh, sans, sans bar is an alcohol-free bar. Mm-hmm. And at first, it was a pop-up bar in, in Austin. You know, Now there's pop-ups all across the country. And you also have a brick-and-mortar store. We'll cover that lately. But I love how that that sense of discomfort of of also like, hey, I think we can do better here. Like, you know, hey, you got a trigger, just pull out that folded piece of paper out of your back pocket and make it through the trigger, right? Right. Rarely does that work. Sounds great in theory. But you said this process can probably be done better. Here I am. I was going to die at 23 or 24. Let's see if I can tackle this. Take it from here. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I'm playing with house money, Paul. Like that's just how I, that's how I felt. Like every year after twenty four in my life has been a has been bonus. Like this is all extra. So I don't fear failure uh, in an entrepreneurship because I'm like this is all bonus. This is this is this is this is you know an excellent. This is a beautiful life that I'm living. So um, yeah, I, I'm at that point eight years into my about about yeah seven or eight years into my clinical life and decide to start up Chance Bar in twenty eighteen. I'm sorry, 2017. And it was just one pop-up. That was, it was just going to be a quick little pop-up where we had non-alcoholic drinks and music and six people showed up, Paul. What what the was person. the menu menu for drinks though? Did you have like a two liter bottle of soda water, some crap? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was nothing. Back then there weren't a lot of options. There, there weren't a ton of things you could do. I mean, <laughs> no, there were not. <laughs> there, there was just nothing. And so I remember just, trying to make it work with what we had. We had, I know we did have like a pina colada because it's just lime, coconut and pineapple. You can sure. make that drink. 
drink the yeah, yeah. yeah. So just just something like you know sure, ginger, yeah. you know ginger beer and rosemary, simple syrup. Like you know just just some fun. They were they were decent drinks, but they were very basic, right? Um, but six people showed up. Four of them were my relatives. So two people that I did not know showed up. But those two people, those two people inspired me. Those two people um, gave me hope that it was possible for a concept like Sands Bar to 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 thrive. And that one pop up started into another pop up in that in the January of 2018, and we just kept growing exponentially. People just kept showing up. People kept. Uh, I didn't do any advertising. I had an Instagram account, and that was about it. But I really did a lot of just word of mouth, and people in the recovery community. Uh, became curious about what I was doing. Um, and at this time, uh, also, it was like that 2018 sober curious movement was starting to build. Then, you know, also the non-alcoholic beverage market was starting to build. And so it was like, I just happened to be in the water at the perfect time when the idea of being sober curious was a thing and the idea of non-alcoholic drinks became a thing. Sure. Yeah, I love that. Was there any moments of doubt? Like, what what am I doing here? I've talked to people who are opening up restaurants and be like, hey, you got to do like a mocktail session or, you know, like an AF bar. You're like, oh, that's silly. That'll never work. Like it is working and that's where it's trending. But was there a moment for you? It's like, what am I doing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had no business <laughs> business opening up a bar. Um, I have no bartending experience and I had no bar, you know, restaurant management experience. The most food and beverage experience I had was working at Subway and busting tables at IHOP. Okay. Like that, that's, that was it. That's my culinary training right there was Subway and IHOP. There was nothing about this that said that I should succeed. Uh, there, there was nothing, nothing about said, Hey, Chris, you're going to succeed. And this is going to be your, your way forward. But I kept going because again, I had that feeling and the feeling was that feeling that I had right after I took that first sip of beer which was like, we are doing, we are connecting, we're having, we're building community. And, and that's what I realized I've been chasing ever since that first drink. I've been chasing deep connection with people. I've been connecting with people in a real substantive way. Like that's, that's what I've been chasing with every drink. It was chasing that feeling of connection with other people. And we were experiencing that every time that we were hosting these Sandsbar pop-ups. Yeah. Now, Chris, before we hit record, you said the Sands Bar project is almost like a classroom for you. Can you expand mm-hmm. on that a bit? Yeah. I mean, and I believe that Sands Bar is a classroom. It is a way for people to reorient themselves to these, these cues that are all around us when we're socializing. So you, you think about walking into a, a busy bar on a Friday night, you know, you, you hear uh, overlapping conversation, you hear people talking, um, you see people laughing and you hear live music in the background. You go up to the bar, bartender says, Hey, welcome. What will you have? All of these cues are cues that we normally associate with alcohol and for some of us, a really bad night. It's the start of a really bad, traumatic sometimes experience. And what I believe Sandsbar does is it helps to change our relationship to these cues. So you walk into that same space and you hear the same sounds, you see the same sights, but instead of it being alcohol in a bad night, you're met with non-alcoholic products and an amazing night of deep connection. And I always tell people, when you come to Sands Bar, at some point in the night, I want you to close your eyes and you cannot tell that you are at a non-alcoholic bar. It feels 
sounds well it doesn't smell like an album <laughs> it doesn't smell like a bar but it, it definitely feels and sounds like any other bar in america and the hope is that as sans bar expands we can offer this opportunity to other people so that they can learn that you can hear uh, someone shaking a drink and someone you know open up the register and people you know ordering drinks and you don't have to associate those things with alcohol and maybe they don't become as much of a trigger for you. Yeah. And you said April of this year, 20, 2023, you have a brick and mortar location for listeners in the Austin area, maybe traveling to that uh, location. It's called Sands Bar, S-A-N-S Bar. Uh, what's the address? Yeah. So it's 918 Congress. We're a block from the Texas Capitol, 10th and Congress. We had a brick and mortar from 2018 to just this this spring uh, that was on the east side of Austin. So we moved our east side location downtown. Uh, it's a beautiful spot. I got to build the bar of my dreams. It's just a beautiful emerald uh, tiled bar with a marble top. Uh, the back bar is so beautifully lit. It is amazing. And Hell the space yeah. is incredible. Yeah, yeah. For our member site for Cafe Area members, we're going to get that. There's an alcohol-free bar listing, Chris. We're going to get that listed up there for sure. Um, how's the response been? How's it going? The Sans Bar? The Great. Location? I mean, it's, since we moved downtown, we're we're getting this whole clientele like foot traffic, right? People come down uh, to Congress. They come to, to check out the Capitol. They check out all the, uh, the things around town near us. And it's been amazing for, pe- for people to walk in who aren't in recovery, who have no alcohol issue, who just see this as like Sans Bar. This looks interesting. I don't know. Like, is it like a bar? Like, so they walk in. And uh, they look at the menu. They're like, I see that there's cocktails here, but are they, is there alcohol in these? Like, no, there's no alcohol. And a lot of people choose to stay. Uh, I've just, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a group of people coming in for a bachelorette party. They came in Austin for a bachelorette event and they were just kind of bar hopping and they made their way to Sands Bar. And they were like, actually, we're at the end of our night. And this is so much better. Like we, we really just want to continue hanging out and spending time with each other. We don't really want to go to another bar where everyone's all sloppy drunk. We just want to spend time with each other. And they, and they weren't drunk. I think they had been drinking, but they weren't wasted. And they just wanted a place to kind of like spend time together. You know, they ordered a pizza from the restaurant next door and they had a great night at Sands Bar. So we see that this is not just for people who are super sober or sober curious, um, we see that this space is for anyone who's looking to have a space where there's connection and you're you're caring about people in a way that you never can when you're intoxicated. You're listening to people in a way that you never could when you're intoxicated. Yeah. What a great story about that bachelorette party, <laughs> right? Yeah. We'll hang out. This is actually the great final stop for us. Yeah. Um, they were, they were, they had, I mean, the, the whole, the, the crowns and the sashes and everything. And they were like, actually, this is the vibe that we're on right now. We're, we're like, we, we've done like dirty six. We've done the whole like yeah. crazy party. Uh, we just kind of like, can we get some waters and can we just like spend time with each other? And they had a great time. We had karaoke that night. So they, they did karaoke. They were like, this is so much fun. I'm like, this is, this is what it means to be sober. Have you ever had to boot anybody from the bar? One person, one person. <laughs> I didn't one think time. that'd be a yes answer. Let's hear it. It happened one time, and that's why it, it that's why it stuck in my mind. That one time, I had someone come in when we were in the on the east side, and we were on the east side. We were on like a row of bars, so people just literally would walk in all the time, just thinking it was another bar. Sure. And this guy was just so wasted, and I was like, "No, you can't be here. This yeah. is because it's not safe for 
for folks who who are trying to just have a normal chill night and you're just belligerent. I one guy literally in six years of operations, one guy who was wasted. <laughs> I mean, it was wasted, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. Every time, every time someone comes in, even if they they don't understand what what the bar is and they they think that there's alcohol there. Every time I explain what it is, or my bartender explains what it is, it's all we've always been met with like, oh well, that's a very cool concept. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm really looking for alcohol right now. But what a cool concept! Uh, yeah, I've never had anyone just like that's dumb or stupid. Like people understand, they respect that people are in the space because they need this space. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 been a very cool experience. Man, pioneer on the podcast right now, Chris Marshall with the Sans Bar. I love it. Chris, I used to own a bar in Spain, age 23 to 26. And there was one time I was like, man, this is really cool. But the worst part about this is the alcohol. Number one for me, like I was getting blacked out every night. And we had to boot people out of the bar all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Like, man, this this drug is crazy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Chris, there's uh, one question I want to ask you before we hit the rapid fire round. And that is, you know, what, what have you learned about yourself along the way? Uh, I love that you said like, Hey, this is all house money. Like I'm going to keep that moving forward. I almost died several times with alcohol, but you know, what's, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself along the way? The one thing I've learned about myself along the way is that uh, the only limitations in this world that I have are the ones that I put on myself. I often forget that sobriety is freedom. And so I can do, I can do almost anything, you know, I, I can do almost anything. And that's, I keep surprising myself, like the things that I can do and the ways that I can, and the ways that I can show up in my life. I'm not talking about the big public facing ways. I'm just talking about being a dad and, and making sure that my, you know, my kids uh, know, know how much they're loved and how much they don't need to do anything else, but be themselves. Like I keep surprising myself, but, but the, but the, the, the ways in which I can grow, the heights and the depths at which I can grow are limitless. They're limitless because I'm sober. And that's something that I just, it just keeps, I just keep showing myself all these different things. Like the, the art thing that creates, that doesn't surprise me. Like I've always been, I've been a creative kid since I was two, right? <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. But what does surprise me is that I'm getting more comfortable with like dancing in public uh, and, and crying. Um, I, I find myself weepy and, and crying more often. Like these are ways in which I surprise myself all the time. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just as surprised as anyone else. I'm along for the ride. Um, and that's what I love about sobriety. I keep showing myself new, new parts of myself that I didn't even know were there. Special. Along for the ride. I love it. Chris, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 10 to 15 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. Right. Number one, best sober moment. The first time I went to Seattle and went to Pike's Market. Yeah, gotcha. changed my life. It was like this is why I want to stay sober. Yeah. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Uh ginger beer and lime. What's the point of life? Connection. I love it how people don't have to think about that question. It's, it's it's quite strange. Well, maybe it's not strange. Here we go. What's your favorite 80s or 90s band? Ooh. Ah, uh, ah, I'm going to go with Sublime. Ah, what I got. All right. Uh, what are some of your favorite resources? Uh, I like the Lucky's Club. Uh, I think it's a really important resource. I like, I like the, I like the regular 12-step programs too. I think that that's something that I'm, I'm coming a lot back to a lot in my own journey. Um, I love podcasts. I think that's a very helpful thing as well. 
Yeah, we had uh, Lauren McCowan on the podcast earlier this year from Lucky's Club. Great interviewee, great author. Good stuff. Uh, Chris, what has recovery made possible for you? Everything. Um, not only do I have this job and this career, I also am a dad and um, I mentor other people as they start their own businesses. Like, again, just there's nothing that I cannot do because of sobriety. Yeah. What's your favorite type of pizza? Uh, sausage and mushroom. All right. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? You can't fail. Uh, the point of sobriety is not abstinence, it's growth. And so even if you aren't able to go without alcohol, frame it in the idea of growing. That that no matter what, I'm going to continue to grow. Uh, and, and also, as you stay sober, the you shouldn't hang your hat on just being absent from alcohol. Oh, like, look how many years I have. It should be, how am I growing? A sign of life is growth. So just frame it through growth and not abstinence or any other weird metric. Yeah, I like that. Chris, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if it's your whole personality. If all you can think about is like how much wine you drink or how uh, you know how knowledgeable you are of craft beer, you might need to ditch the booze. Love it. Chris, that was fantastic. I'm so glad we got to connect. I hope, I'm certain our paths were crossed in the future. Keep doing what you're doing, my man. Yeah, uh, I know we will connect in the future. Uh, we're already connected in so many wonderful ways. And uh, again, just thank you. And thank you for being the leader you are, Paul. Uh, people say wonderful things about you and how you've impacted people is felt across North America. I just want uh, you to know that. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Good stuff, my man. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. How great was Chris's story? If you can think it, dream it, it can be done. Chris is hydrating those who have a thirst for authenticity. I cannot wait to see where his journey goes. Keep rocking it, Chris, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Recovery Elevator, go big, because eventually we'll all go home. I love you guys.